so I reiterate here, the bill is dead. The story of this great city is about the years before this night. What's up, this is Hong Kong. I am Andy Curtin. I'm sitting here with Vivek Muhammad Mahbubani. Muhammad Magdi's back on. Where do people I'm find here. you? Where, where do people find you online, buddy? Uh, at the other Muhammad on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram as well at Andy Curtin. You can check it out. If you're enjoying the podcast, hit subscribe. Uh, and also, we have an amazing Patreon. Uh, account at Hoho Pod. Wait, patreon.com slash Hoho Pod. Yep. Uh, we are six. Uh, patrons off being fully covering our overhead. So jump on there. And every Thursday we put out a bonus episode, which what is pretty is it, $5? sick. $5? $15? for a bonus episode yeah. every Thursday. And That's that, a pretty good deal. And a warm, fuzzy feeling. You yeah. know, you just feel good about yourself. Plus, we put on way better content. Yeah, yeah. This crap we're putting out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shout out to recent pat- patron, uh, Professor Ben Cowling. Oh, damn. He joined? Yeah, dude. Nice. What? That is awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate uh, that a lot, seeing you on there. Today's guest... Oh is man, this your, is exciting! Your boss. Yes. This look. This is how this is how much Mo hates working. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how can I do at work to make it not work and make my boss think it's work? John Let's Buck- have him on the podcast. John Buckman is here. How you doing, man? I- I'm good. I I hired Mohammed to make me funny. There you go. He's, <laughs> the, the, yeah, he sounds great. That's yeah. the best Patreon subscriber you ever had. <laughs> I, I, I tried to be funny, but um, uh. I'll edit that in. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave it in, yeah. Uh, no, I, you, you've got a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. Um, some of it you're not doing right now, but it was all interesting, so I'm just going to start reading it out. Your current project, which, which Mo's working on, is yeah. Decent Espresso, which, from what I can tell, is really just taking like a technological impro- approach to coffee machines. Is that fair? Uh, it's coffee that doesn't suck. That's, yeah. yeah. That's a great goal to have when you're making coffee. <laughs> yeah, because most of them do. Because Starbucks is like, alternatively. Yeah, or, yeah, you pay more <laughs> and your coffee also sucks. Uh, so you've got a real range of interesting projects. You worked on, you uh, founded Magnitude, which is a subscription service for indie music, Mood Mix, background music for companies, I license music, Book Mooch, an online book exchange community, uh, Tone Gnome, audio engineering for classical music, and a bunch of other stuff, man. Do you sleep? That's why you got up so much coffee. This is exactly why I started the company, because I needed more caffeine in my blood. And I, I love you. You made a, a big video online uh, entitled, Why Employees Suck. Yeah, and slide number two. Which I'm amazed you did before you hired suck. Muhammad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did give him shit for it. I'm like, I should have watched that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show that Mo didn't do research. When, oh, no, no, when, no uh, research whatsoever. <laughs> That's a great thing to put out there. Just, you know, just like, have you researched my company? Yes. <laughs> Nothing no. stood out. Nothing <laughs> stood out. Didn't find anything online. <laughs> Might be a concern like mm, the fact that I think that employees, employees are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> He's also a bit, big advocate for self-employment. That's funny. <laughs> that's just what Which he tells you're about to be. That's, <laughs> that's just what he tells people when he's firing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I hear him all day telling yeah, people yeah. that. I don't really points. like people working for me. You know, no, you just go do your own thing. Don't think of yourself as fired. Yeah. Think of yourself as self-employed. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I kind of hope you said that to someone at some point. Um, so you were born in Paris. No, I was born in London. Born in you, London. You didn't do your research, did you? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I must be talking about somebody else. No, borderline, but you you immediately went to Paris, right? I did it six months old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Did you go on your own? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? You were, uh, it was pretty close, but you were there until ten, and then you moved to the U.S. Yeah. So, first language is French. Mais right? oui. And so, I, I, I years ago you were very focused on having free internet. That was a big. Um, pro- it seems to be a big focus for stuff you're working. I got on. over that. Y- y- really? <laughs> what did you really? No, actually, what I did get over was it just futile. What I did get over was uh, I was a, a San Francisco Bay Area weenie, and uh, when you're a, a San Francisco Bay Area weenie, your conversation has to immediately go to Amazon, Google, or the next IPO. And if you don't do that within ten seconds, people start looking elsewhere. Mm. And everything you do has to be described in massive, change the world. Uh, overturning tradition. So I'll give you an example. I do this thing, Bookmooch, where people are exchanging used books. But no, they're not exchanging used books. What they're actually doing is... Looking at porn. BitTorrent <laughs> oh. for books, because BitTorrent's cool. But even better, we're going to destroy Amazon because Amazon only has a centralized warehouse. We've got distributed warehouses. We're going to destroy Amazon. Right. So when you and say... And that's how you think about the things in the Bay Area, is, is like massive change, massive disruption, and really like big, huge egos. So that concept of disruption seems to be present in all the things that you've been working on. Like, do you, do you think you've benefited from that sort of background of framework? Well, I did tell you I was a barrier weenie, so you got to keep that into in mind. And um, I think what it was is that I was a big fan of this guy, Buckminster Fuller, who's this philosopher, builder stuff guy. He invented the geodesic dome and a lot of other crazy stuff. He invented stuff. the what? Geodesic dome. What's that? The geodesic dome. Have you ever seen uh, these triangle-shaped uh, domes as shapes? No, you've never seen one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So essentially what he looked at is he said, most people, this is in the 30s, most people are working for a salary to pay for housing. Mm-hmm. Housing's too expensive. If I can figure out how to build a cheaper home, then everyone can work less for less money and be happier. So I'm going to try and figure out how to solve the home problem. And he invented a new way of constructing things, which is from triangles. Okay. And, and he pushed that and pushed that and pushed that. And um, he ended up- Muhammad knows all about that. I don't. Yeah, you're <laughs> Egyptian. Oh, nice. <laughs> 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 Gypsy's like, he's the original. Yeah. We've been building things with triangles for thousands of years. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, what I loved about um, Buckminster Fuller was this idea that you could be an engineer and have a social mission that was incredibly disruptive. And what I also liked about it is it wasn't about defeating someone, it was about finding a better way and then getting people to move to that better way. And using mm. that to defeat someone. You're not defeating it. They're just leaving them the dust. <laughs> right? You never actually hit them head on. Mm. So, you know, for example... What did um, Peter Thiel say? Uh, competition is for losers or something? Mm. <laughs> when I did my music thing, um, what bothered me about music is that if you weren't pop, mm. then major labels were not interested in you. So all these music genres I like, from classical to death metal, were just vanishing because they just were less than 1% of the market. So no one cared about them. Um, and I thought the best way to market is to get collectives together so that my fans are shared with your fans. Right. So that was the whole idea with Magnitude was to find musicians who want nothing to do with the rapacious music industry. Or maybe they can't get in. Uh, they, can't, they can't get in because they're not interested. Right. The but but, but there's, there's definitely been 
a big focus from the music industry on indie music. I mean, indie music is in many ways on a large scale, not indie at all. Um, so in the... Or is that just a misnomer? Yeah, it's a misnomer. So in the 90s, um, the major labels controlled 80% of the music business. Mm. By the time 2010 rolled around, they controlled 96% of the music business. So it's hard to imagine like a Nirvana occurring now. What has happened is that the major labels have squeezed it so tight mm. that, and you see this on Spotify, that the hip hop scene has just completely given up on record labels and is going straight to Spotify and doing really well. And right. you see the same thing with authors going direct to Amazon and bypassing publishers. And that's, that's a pretty positive sign for the artists, right? Uh, if you have that ethical framework <laughs> and you're not about expropriating money from other people, who haven't add, you know not adding much value? Then um, I've kind of lost the, the tangent there. But no, no, no. I kind of want to understand that. Like, what, what am words, I missing? What am I missing in my understanding? What of... I'm saying is the status quo made a lot of people a lot of a lot of money. Mm. Okay, and people like Amazon, the major labels, got really, really rich and like being the gatekeepers. Um, and someone like Spotify was created to uphold the gatekeepers. So the existing whole major label and publisher and Amazon thing just made a ton of money for the gatekeepers. And something mm. like Spotify was created actually to support the, the existing gatekeeping system and actually has been kind of morphed into something with hip hop artists and indie artists that is now super exciting. Um, and that, those are the projects I've always been interested in are those where a really small crowd of people does something really out of the ordinary like book swapping between people or signing indie artists or just three people inventing a brand new espresso machine from zero. Let's let's backtrack a bit. What is your connection like to, to music? Like, did you grow up in an artistic family? Uh, like, what, what is your background like that got you interested in, in, in the music industry in the first place? Like a lot of people, I just was really into music. There's right. a lot of people that are. Mm. I tried to be a musician and I just wasn't good at it. Right. And I had a reasonably good ear, and I just wanted to contribute. What but, did you try to play? Uh, so I was electric guitarist. You played the lute, right? I played the lute. And nice. the reason I played the lute is because um, I start off as electric guitarist, doing rock and then jazz. And basically, when you have a day job, those are genres that require a band. Mm. So you go home, you don't really want to go to band practice. So I picked up an instrument that... Um, that, that, that wouldn't require a band. But there's another thing, too, which is it's about competition. Mm. And if you do something that a lot of other talented people are doing, you better be good. Otherwise, you're going to be bad. Mm. So I'm mostly mediocre at most of the things I do. <laughs> and so I try to look for spaces where there's not too much competition. Dilute. Very thin market <laughs> right there. Right. That's right. It's you and all the dudes that do the medieval fair on Sundays. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're by far the coolest loot player I've ever met. There you go. So, Am I the only loot player you've ever met? Correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, fast forward a little bit. So so you're you're running decent coffee out of Hong Kong. What brought you to Hong Kong? Uh, what brought me to Hong Kong is that um, I had been doing nothing but internet-y things. And in my 20s, I'd worked a bit in restaurants and I'd done some food stuff, but the competition was way too like workaholic and talented. Mm. So I, I got out of there. And, and I started doing programming stuff and I got moderately successful at it. I sold a company, so I had some cash. And I really wanted to do something real and especially in food. What I really wanted was to wake up excited to do something. And when right. you're in the Silicon Valley, unless you are you know, jacking your brain full of world-conquering notions, mm. it's pretty dismal. 
right? So like the company that sold to, to fund what I'm doing with coffee, started off doing email newsletters, which was all about global communication and people chatting with each other. Is that the one that did George Bush's campaign? That's right. And mm-hmm. it eventually became about email marketing. And to wake up each day and be like, yes, I'm going to survey, you know, political uh, parties and what we should say to get more votes. That's was it, was it the election that he won or the one that he lost? Um, so I, my software was both Clinton's and Bush's oh, Wait, campaigns. no, Bush was two terms, wasn't he? Uh, Bush was, the, the Bush's son was two terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. It was the f- first one, I think, Clinton to Bush. Mm. Anyway. Uh, no. So you've got I've, some... I've uh, erased it. But actually, it was really... What, what, what ended it for me was when the White House was using my software and they called us and they said, we're thinking about maybe going to war with Iraq. Will your software be able to send out the email at two in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and all I was and doing was like, sending software. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just writing software that was supposed to be newsletters. And right. all of a sudden, I am part of the war effort. Right. And I was really not cool with that. Um, were so you were you worried it. about the repercussions of saying no to them? I was unable to say no to them. Oh, uh, so you wanted to say no, you couldn't. Yeah, and the reason you can't say no is I have this whole team of mm. people, I have 50 people working for me with all diverse political leanings mm. and a lot of people who just want money. And and so we named a big number and they said, okay, we'll pay that number. And the sales like, people were all happy. <laughs> yeah, like, damn, it didn't work. You should have asked for more. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you give someone a number and they immediately yeah. say yes, you're like, didn't ask for enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did actually happen that uh, someone who wanted me to work for the Pentagon mm. and knew I would never work there invited mm. me to lunch. Only the lunch was with a general who was interviewing me for a job. Wow. Right. And I was making $25 an hour US at the time. Mm. Um, and I did not want to work for them. So they said, how much are you? And I thought of the most stupidly high number I could think of. <laughs> which like was like $26 an hour. I said, I said $120 an hour. I was like, there's no way. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, and they went, okay, no problem. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh no. Wait, I left off a zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so I next thing, Bitcoin. Next thing they do is they, 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 ha- they take my fingerprints, and, uh, and then they do the, the, you know, we'll be in touch. We're going to do just the background check, and they never called again. Nice. Wow. So I totally failed the background check. What did you mess up? Like, did you just go and do something dumb immediately so they can, like, by the time they, they find you, you're already... So I'm no pretty go? sure it was the fact that my grandmother worked for the Russian news agency. Um, and <laughs> that was, was CLA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she was the personal secretary to Eugene Debs, who was the socialist candidate for president. Nice. That, so sounds, that sounds good. I think that that <laughs> kind of killed it. Either that or the coke habit. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that helps. <laughs> so what? What? Why Hong Kong? What? Why did you come out uh, here? So, Could have gone anywhere. So um, I, uh, I I got into this this less design espresso machine thing, and I had this idea, which was I'm just going to work from home, hire some other talented people. We all work from home, and I was in San Francisco. Through some contacts, hired some people in Seattle, which is where you find Did engineers. Did you have a business idea, or are you just like, we've got to work from home? Uh, the business idea was, well, I've got a bunch of money from my <laughs> selling my company, mm. uh, so I'm not stressed out about money, and I really wanted this. So my business idea was just, I really want this. And the reason I wanted it is that I had tried um, and failed to make good coffee at home with two other big purchases. The last one had been $10,000 worth of gear, mm. and I still made bad coffee. And so um, I don't know how else to put it, but I felt emasculated when a right. guy spends $10,000 to show his girlfriend or wife 
how he's going to make great coffee and then fails after two years and sells it, you're just like, you have a big L on your forehead for loser. Right. And, and that's how I felt about it. And now I'm like, okay, I'm making the espresso after spending 10 grand on this machine. Are you talking 10 grand US? Yeah, 10 grand US. That is a machine right there. Machine yeah. plus grinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When, you, yeah. when you look into this market, you can go up, like way up on the, on the spending if you, if you go a little nuts. Well, actually but, what happens is you spend like 3,000 yeah. on your grinder and, and machine and then you're making really bad coffee and everyone tells you, dude, it's because your machine's not any good. Yeah. You're like, you went totally cheap. So sell them. Of course, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. So you sell the machine, buy a more expensive machine, and then you realize, oh, it's it's actually it is my not, fault. Not <laughs> it's because I am a loser. Turns out it was me. <laughs> to buy a more expensive me. So it's yeah. literally you just being frustrated by not being able to make good coffee. That's it. Yeah, and I had read books. I've been on forums, mm. and I just uh, I. So it wasn't like one of these things when, like, younger, you just always wanted to build a cool coffee machine or whatever. No, I just wanted to make something that. I just wanted to be a man. I just want to be a man. Yeah. yeah I was a loser. <laughs> okay. so this and I thought there'd be a lot of other loser men out the there US. Who, who would pay a lot to not be losers. <laughs> yeah. So at some point, you decided that the US wasn't the place to do this. Yeah. So we, we did the design. We went to a trade show. People liked the machine we had. And um, I have, I've, I've built stuff my whole life. Um, and I've always had a lot of respect for the craft people. Like anyone who... You know, anyone who actually puts their hands in mm. the muck and, and makes it happen. And I knew that there would be a huge gap between those drawings and the actual building of the thing. And That's a level of self-awareness that many people <laughs> in Silicon Valley don't hold. <laughs> and, well, and, I, and what I found with the engineers in America is that they would send their drawings off to a factory and then a year later, exactly what they drew would show up or so they thought. Right. Mm. But if you do a little bit of digging, you find actually that those factories, wherever they are in the world, have a whole team of engineers that completely redo all the drawings that the Westerners have sent mm. so they can actually be made. Right. Okay. A, a typical example will be like one part is supposed to mate with another part to an accuracy of six decimal points of precision, right? And, and the factories just laugh at that. Like, mm. What are we going to do? Cut this thing with lasers? Mm. Uh, it's like, no, we use sandpaper. So I want freaking sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there are products in the coffee space that are made you know, entirely like that. I heard a story that there was this the, the cigarette factory in the USSR that was making the best uh, cigarettes, however you measure it. And they went and investigated why. And the precision of the equipment there was super, super high because there's all of these engineers from the space po- program. They just got them to work in the well, cigarette they factory? They, they, they stopped funding their space right, right, program right, yeah. and had to work somewhere. That's great. And they had yeah. they just brought that mentality. You know what this is like? This is like with COVID, a lot of flight attendants are working at restaurants yeah, which so is amazing, and you're like, why are all the hostesses now? really hot? They're like, oh, they're all flight attendants. Yeah, Got yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> so you realize that that I guess a lot of these manufacturers are in Asia with their engineers and stuff like that. Is so that's what drew you out here. Had you did you have any connection with Asia at that point? I didn't have any connection with with Asia. I had come through Hong Kong at one point and uh, walking through. Um, the the Soho or district, what was called Lang Kwai Fung, um, walking that up like classy yeah, establishment, classy <laughs> walking up some like old staircase. Mm. Um, there was this thing called yarn bombing. Do you guys know what yarn bombing is? No. no. Yarn bombing is when people who are really into knitting will just yarn the shit out of some space, right? And they okay. just knit 
everything in, in sight. And so we're walking up this stairwell outside. How many this, years this ago was needy, that? The, yeah, this is like six years ago. Okay. And we're walking up and like everything we can find is covered in knitting. So like all the banisters are covered with knitting, but not just knitting. Are you sure you hadn't had any psychedelics at this point? It probably helped. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they've also like knitted roses and flowers and the lamp poles got knitting everywhere. What is this, like old ladies or something? And no, it's, it's actually kind of like punked out nerdy girls mostly. Mm. Um, and and it's it's a little bit like um, guerrilla gardening. Do you know about that? Guerrilla gardening is where people take urban spaces that are unloved and they right. turn them into gardens. Oh yeah, yeah okay. completely without permission. Yeah. And now what I loved about what I saw in Hong Kong and what this yarn bombing meant is it meant first of all there's some really eccentric people here. Right. Secondly, there are some skilled people like they're into their hobbies. And third, the enforcement of law is not that high. Yeah, you figured that out at LKF. That yeah. is that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, like, as much as LKF is, you know, gross and and a million other things, I think a lot of people that was an early place that they saw when they came here, myself included. Yeah, and it is that you get the vibe of the city there a little bit. Just yeah. that whole central area. I I've, I've always felt like walking up those escalators when I used to be a guest was like being in Blade Runner or something, mm -hmm. you know, you sort of, this vertical city, mm -hmm. you look through a window and there's a woman knitting and then there's a woman getting a massage and it's all like through. Yes. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one, one, I don't know if you have watched Chunking Express. Yeah, yeah. So did the you like it? Movie yeah, yeah. Of all time. yeah, so I recommend it. I really like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I recommend it to him. I usually we give each other good recommendations. Yeah. He Not hated anymore. it so much. I've never taken a recommendation <laughs> from you again. Yeah, I know. He hated it. But actually it reminded me of the mid-level escalator because there is a few shots is, yeah. when they are on it and it's just so visually beautiful. Yes. And that was like twenty years ago. And now now you go on the escalator, I'm like, it looks exactly the same. It mm. still is. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he likes the movie, by the so way. So you saw that <laughs> and you thought this is a place I can come. Did you just move here on that uh, basis? So, no, what actually happened is I wanted to find um, someone who knew how to build coffee machines already. So uh, we hired an intermediary. So we're in America. We knew nothing oh, about yeah. Asia. Oh, yeah. Getsu spilling the beans, which That's I right. wanted to ask you about. Spilling the beans. Did you just make a coffee pun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He made it first. <laughs> it's, okay. our, it's, it's our video series of our adventure of coming to It's on to YouTube. Hong it's Kong. public knowledge. But it's it's like, I don't think that's a full story, is it? Like the video. Well, we, we stopped making the videos when they got boring. Right. So yeah. the really exciting thing is when we come here and we're just blithering idiots and we get scammed several times. And Yeah, can you yeah, talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, so we hired an intermediary uh, who was an American woman from Chicago. And How did you find her? As she had a sort of uh, Macon Asia website or something like right. that. And she's in Hong Kong. Yeah. She's an old timer, 25, 30 years in Hong Kong. Mm. She knows Chinese manufacturers. She'll find a factory to make your thing. Right. So we hired her and she's trying to, she's sourcing our parts and... Um, and I said, can you find me a factory that builds professional special machines? And, and she finds one um, in the Guangzhou area, the city called Penyu. And um, so we then moved the whole company. Like all my Western engineers, we all go like, hey, let's move to China. How many people did you have? <laughs> uh, that was like eight people at the time. Okay. Um, so not huge, but, and their spouses. Mm. Um, and I rented apartments and we got the whole thing ready. And then we show up. And she says, sign this document or you're not going to see the factory. And right. the document said, all purchases go through me at whatever price I decide. That old chestnut. Yeah. 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 Right. So, uh, so I'm just stalling for time. And, um, and we're like, oh, God, all our engineers are coming. And we don't even know where the factory is. She's supposed to take us to the factory. And she's trying to completely own us. Yeah. 
Um, so what we ended up doing is looking through all the videos we had and she'd scrubbed it of everything. But we found like zoom, 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 found a product name. And then we went on um, one I of the- I would have gone to Panyu City pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't We didn't know much. We just like, it's somewhere in Panyu. We don't even yeah. know the name. And yeah, you know, imagine the first time when you landed in China and how lost you were. Oh, God. Yeah. We have all been through that experience. <laughs> so I don't blame you for like being like, ah! yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, also in China, everyone is acting like they're a factory, but they're always a middleman. Like actually finding the factory is almost impossible. Right. Um, so, um, so what we ended up doing is going on with like a, a Fiverr-like service and posting all the photographs and just saying $500 reward for anyone in the next 24 hours who can find us the owner. That's hilarious. Like, within an hour, it's like we had this WeChat. Boom. <laughs> but, but that's that is, brilliant but that is when you learn you know if you find a way to ask the right questions if you've got enough people on your WeChat you can put something on your moments and yeah. access to stuff like that they go boom here's the guy speak yeah. to this yeah. guy yeah yeah, in Shanghai where we lived it was always very common to just have a dog post up like a lost dog with like a money reward and then you just watch people like would how find many minutes. It. They're like, people would in front leave, of me right now? You yeah, know. yeah, people would leave their work and go on a dog hunt in the middle of the day. It's quite hilarious. But it's also very resourceful. You can see like people are like, oh yeah, lost dog, money, I'm on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she tried to scam the factory guy too and said, you're not going to meet the rich Western guy unless you sign this paper. piece wow. of paper. Doing both sides. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he went, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also that, you know, you, you, people have this like uh, the chase and sense when there's dollars there approach mm. because that puts such a massive amount of cost on the potential business that it yes. might kill the business. Yes. Um, so, I mean, one thing about uh, pretty much, I'm going to say, blanket statement about Asians in general is they don't like public conflict. And they just like cool down. You should go to northern China. All right, maybe oh, yeah. they like public conflict. <laughs> Not around here. Like if they people love start, it in northern yeah. China. Yeah. People start screaming at each other. At least down here in southern China, yeah. uh, like everyone goes quiet. Right. Everyone right. just kind of freezes. Yeah, you know what? I think it's a southern China thing. Okay. Because yeah. even in Shanghai, like they won't fight, but they'll quarrel. Yeah, like, drastically. Like, like this dramatic quarrel in public, and everyone stands around and watches. It's well, I'm glad I don't make blanket statements about China because I don't know anything. <laughs> so, so the three people I have met in China acted like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, what happened is uh, this woman had made a big public scene, and this guy is like, "Oh, I don't want to deal with this. This is all too weird." And she had said she was my boss, so he doesn't know what's going on. Right. Interesting. So, so the factory guy's so like, she's just lying to everybody. Yeah, she's lying to everybody, and the factory guy's like, "I, you know, you guys sort your shit out." I don't want to deal with it. You know what's funny is yeah. when you come here and the foreigners are the stereotype yes. of the locals. <laughs> <laughs> They're the worst. They learn they do the, the worst. worst behavior. They say, well, I'm here. I can do whatever I want. I'm That's like, right. you're the worst of anyone out here. I've seen some <laughs> totally. despicable. Yeah. And, and so we had prepaid um, for the apartments and, um, and also to do like R&D resources. Anyway, he goes to the hotel and he just yells at the hotel staff and says like, give them back all their money now. Right, and they just handed. So I had an engineer go on the bus to Panyu. Mm. He opened up an account in China, in order to get all these renminbi, and we got all our money back on the spot. Twenty four hours later, right? Wow. Like I don't want to be accused of any improprietary. I'm giving you back all your money. Yeah, call me when you sort it out with this crazy woman. Um, 
So is she I, still around? Do you know? I don't know. Uh, she bet she. Yeah, is. she kind of went after. She hired a private investigator because she gave us like this massive bill out of revenge, and I said no. <laughs> um, so How about I don't pay that. <laughs> yeah, I don't pay that. So then, <laughs> then she had a, a PI who noticed that our photos that we were putting on Facebook had uh, location ID on them, right? Your GPS. Yeah. So, so she confronted us and like, I'm going to chase you out of town, uh, which is kind of not your best two. Weeks I mean, our address country. here is also public knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's, she, not, it's not a great welcoming to to here. But uh, yeah, you know, I found some locals and they just kind of laughed like that's not how it works here. You're right? right. It, yeah, it seriously, is rule of law. It's yeah. you know, you don't have to. Oh, in Hong Kong, person. yeah, yeah. This Guangzhou, I'm not so sure about. No, and and that is why we're in Hong Kong, it's right? Because um, it is Guangzhou. You, you get your ass kicked. I mean, I've been I've done business in Guangzhou where we were working in factories where the the factory manager was stealing quite a lot, and we didn't enter the city without each of us having personal security guards. Mm. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, what do you say, like mob, gangster, whatever. It's not, know? yeah. The, and the, the factories the, use them too. The rules are against you there. And, and the thing is, is that as a foreigner, and I've been a foreigner most of my life, <laughs> wherever I am, yeah. um, generally foreigners aren't treated the same as locals. Right, right. In America, everyone's, as far as the government's concerned, a foreigner to be abused. So you know that that kind of feels good. You're on the same equal mm -hmm. shitty footing. But uh, in most parts of the world, even if you go like as a foreigner to Taiwan or even Singapore, you do not have the same rights as the locals. And in Hong Kong, even though I'm a foreigner, I got the same rights here. If I go to court, it's in English. I get to choose the law I want. I mean, right. It's, it's it's really out of its way to be fair to us. So um, that's why we're here. If we went to China, the rules are stacked against us. But I want to just say, like, just like every other country. Uh, so that's why we're here is we need people who can deal with the people who make stuff. Yeah. Um, but I value my freedom, my ability to act and to be treated fairly. Yeah. Uh, too much to go anywhere else. So how was the transition from that moment into being like, we should stay? Um, so the, the big secret about entrepreneurs is that any successful entrepreneur actually doesn't plan anything, <laughs> right? Because if you actually That plan, is a secret most entrepreneurs would not share. Yeah, yeah. If, if you plan two years in the future, you're like, I'm getting out of this. I'm getting a job. That is too hard, too risky. Right. Um, and you just are dealing with the next damn problem. And all the, the great secret of entrepreneurs is they just don't give up too easily. Mm. So like each problem, they're just going to bang on it until their blood heads, you know, bleeding, and then and then just keep banging on it. Yeah, it's just they're going to have to die before they they give up. And but if you gave them all the problems they're going to have to solve, they probably would give up. So it's just one thing after another. I mean, first thing is like finding a co-working space, then it's to rent a factory, then it's to get visas, then you know, blah 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 blah. blah. Mm. It's all boring. That's why the videos ended because it ends up just being. The day to day the grind. of uh, yeah the right. grind and you know, do you want to show me filling out applications for permits? No, yeah, that would be boring. So as of today, I mean, we're sitting in your factory in Hong Kong right now. There yep. is an amazing lineup of people making these beautiful, beautiful coffee machines. Mm. Um, you made an interesting point as we're walking through that you felt that the hierarchy that we use in the West doesn't really fit. You know, what, what's your view on, on you know, uh, Hong Kong staff? So by and large, I know there's exceptions, but by and large in the 80s when Hong Kong was one of the main places on the planet making clothes, mm. it was small producers. 
So it was individual people with sewing machines, and they would get collected. Right. It, Hong Kong has never been a mass factory place. There are some exceptions. There are factories, but generally, it's been small producers. Yeah, mm. which might be like you know rent and size, right? I mean, there's not really. What, what do you? Ha- it's hard to have factories. Here. I think also you have to understand that Hong Kong is a place where of refugees. People have come here since forever to run away from other places. Right. And, and quote so unquote other places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they've been, you know, uh, they, they, they pull themselves out of their own bootstraps. Okay. Mm. And uh, they're very individualistic. And, um, and I would say all Chinese are masters of passive resistance, right? If you can't get people, Chinese people, to do things you don't want them to do. They'll find ways to not do it. Mm. I know some people that would disagree with that. All right. <laughs> um, I don't know them personally, but I read about them in the newspapers you read all about the, the time. Papers. So, um, so a real trick for me was, as a Westerner, coming here and figuring out what do the people I hire need in order to be happy and productive and personally invested into this mm. um, so that I, I, I don't have to manage them. And by managing them, I mean motivate. Right, coordinating is fun, but managing people to motivate people is just not fun. Um, and I eventually figured out a couple of things. One is, at least in Hong Kong, I think a lot of Asia, the family is a central metaphor, and we're in this together. But as also as big uncle and big aunt, that's me and my partner. We need to sort the family out. We need to make sure things are working okay. We have to deal with the big problems. Mm. So you see, the the team is a family. The team is a family, but it also means that they're happy when we're successful. Because it means that they're secure in their position. Mm. Whereas in the West, generally, if the big boss is making a lot of money, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right? That's the man taking from me. Right. Um, now, that's a really interesting way to look at it, actually. How, how did you come to that conclusion? Is it just be, by managing people here versus managing people in the West when you be like, oh, okay, they're looking at it differently? Or is that something you read or a philosophy the, you believed there in? There were a lot of signs and it wasn't, I, essentially I would put stories in my head and mm-hmm. then if that story were true, then how would people act? So I would come up with a story, if this is the central metaphor, then what happens if this happens? So I'll right. give you an example. Um, this happened to me in Hong Kong all the time. I would go to an employee and say, hey, please do this. Mm-hmm. And I come back 10 minutes later and they weren't doing that, someone else was doing it. And mm-hmm. I go, I asked you to do that. And they'll go, yeah, but we all met and decided you were wrong and we had a better idea. Right. So it's getting done, just not the way you asked. Mm. And, and that was always the case. And if I insisted, they would be like, okay, well, I'm going to do a shit job because you're a jerk. Right. You're, 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 not, you're not understanding how it works here. And um, I had one guy who was extremely bicultural. He had gone to the UK um, from age 10 to 16. And... Um, and he was Cantonese, and then come back here, and he would explain to me cultural things. That he might that must I was be a useful asset, right? Super mm. useful. Um, and and he told me one day that the thing about people here is that it's all at the goal. Like, don't tell us how to do something. Right. That you don't know that. That's why you hire us. We know how to do things. If you think you know better, you're just delusional, and we don't actually respect you for that. Uh, tell us what the goals are. We're going to make it happen. And if we're not able to make it happen, then get rid of us. Which we were talking about that the other day over lunch is that the idea like that when you get something to a Chinese factory and you want to tell them exactly how to do it and they're like, no, 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 let us just do it and we'll give you the final result exactly how you want it. But, mm-hmm. the, but, but I feel like at the same time, uh, specificity in what the outcome should be needs to be clear. Right, yeah. The extreme clarity. Uh, actually, the language barrier is a huge advantage, would you believe, when dealing with... 
Chinese speakers. How so? Um, because there is, first of all, their English is never good enough to express great subtlety. Mm. Their right. English is oriented towards clarity. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. an interesting the, point. The words mean what they mean. Mm. Uh, and secondly... Well, just because you're, you're so focused on trying to be understood. Yes. Right. Uh, and secondly, um, anything complicated has got to be drawn. Like, we, we need a drawing. Yeah. So that, that, that's really important. Uh, anything that is unclear, would, it needs to be rewritten. It needs, it needs to be written for a, a first-year English student, essentially. That's the level everything has to be. And so that extreme clarity is really helpful. It also means that game-playing just isn't really possible because the language just isn't there. Um, it also means that they don't do contracts at all. The terms of the deal are on the back of the PO, and that, that's it. Yeah. Um, there's also, I should mention, something super interesting about China is that anytime you deal with the court system, I mean, anyone deals with the court system, both We're, sides lose. You're talking about the Hong Kong court and system. I'm talking about mainland. Mm. Uh, both sides yeah, lose? Yeah, both sides lose. So there's, there's a general tradition in Chinese law that if you uh, bring If you plaint, haven't settled it before you get to court, right? Yeah, if you haven't settled it. If you right. bring plaint to somebody else and you accuse them, mm. if you lose, the punishment that would have hit them hits you. That's true in the West, though. I mean, if you if I accuse you of stealing from me and I want a million dollar settlement, and then I it turns out that I don't win, then the settlement actually applies to me. The punishment is reversed. Right. So, I'm just thinking more like if I if we have a disagreement mm. and I make you a reasonable offer, mm-hmm. then you're on the hook for any of my costs after that. Uh, that's There's true. There's a punitive element to to not trying to reach an, a, a reasonable agreement. In the U.S., the their courts are extremely that's reluctant. That's common I don't know about you. Mm. Yeah, the, the courts in the U.S. are extremely reluctant to award attorney fees or any punitive. Oh, fees. yeah. In Australia, that's pretty common. Oh. If there's a reasonable offer that's been made and hasn't been taken, mm. you're likely to be on the hook for so, that. So, in general, in at least, I'll say, southern China, uh, there is a huge desire to resolve things without the government. Right. Without the courts, because it's just going to go bad. Also, there's so much regulation, and China is so worried about its reputation that bad actors in China, perceived or not, it, it's like, that's bad. If you're perceived as somebody who's regularly scamming people and bringing ill reputation to us, that's bad. Yeah, in China, it's like the, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the prison. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, um, it was explained to me here in Hong Kong, like, if you're a foreigner and you like, pay at a restaurant and you don't get the change you're supposed to get, ask for the police. Uh, the mm-hmm. police will, you know, blah, 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 talk about it. But if that happens, the third time it happens, the restaurant gets fined. Even if every time they weren't cheating. Right. Because the police is like, you are getting way too many people saying you're scammers. We don't believe you. You're causing trouble. Right. Um, but there's a, I mean, the, the, the state of the legal system in Hong Kong and mainland China, I mean, it's just, uh, still Hong Kong is closer to the US than, yes. than it is to the mainland. Yes. Mm. Um, I mean, we don't, um, I've, I've kind of gone off now. Uh, let's, let's, let's go back to uh, the sort of the family metaphor and, mm. and how we build in Hong Kong. Um, I mean, I would say that in general, especially younger people um, are pessimistic about the future and they're worried about, um, let's just say, Hong Kong becoming just another Chinese city. Mm. Just put it in those terms. Not an unfair concern. No, no, no. Uh, And other Chinese cities are stealing their thunder. Mm. Okay. And so, um, so what's in it? Our future doesn't look great. So how do you, as an employer, get people out of that pessimism? Mm. How, how do you give them something that they get excited about and they personally, emotionally invest in it? And <clears throat> that's been like a real puzzle to try and to sort out. 
And for a long time, we just didn't get there. If you look at our charts, and I publish all our production charts, mm. we were very slow to build machines. It took us 20 hours to build a machine. Right. To build one machine, 20 man hours, right, to build a, a single machine. And like our progress was really slow. After two years, we've only half that. We're still 10 hours to build a machine. I just didn't, didn't crack it until I came across this idea <clears throat> from essentially the old master craftsman approach, which is someone bears responsibility, but also they bear, they, they get the, the accolades, they get the Of respect, making a good product. Of making a good thing that goes into the product, not the whole product. Thing is, is if you're in a big company, even if it's 30, 40 people, your contribution to that product is quite small. And if you look around and you see other people screwing up, you're like, well, why should I bother? Because you know right. the product's not going to be that great. And profitability isn't that affected by what I do. But if you're the guy who does the wood handle, and mm. everyone sees the wood handle, and the wood handle is really nice, or the wood handle sometimes is bad, and I get yelled at, I'm the wood handle guy. And, right. and I've done a great job at that. And so I'm respected as the guy who does that well. I do it faster and faster. And, and that's my thing. Um, and that was the thing that basically cracked it. Do you think that's a, a quality of people in Hong Kong? Or do you think that's you know, people in general? I have never tried that in the West. And I, I suspect it could work with the right people that you hire. Hmm. Because uh, I find that a lot of the stereotypes, quote unquote stereotypes, when you kind of dig into them, you know, the one I always talk about is they say Chinese people don't like losing face. Mm. It's like nobody likes losing face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's the public embarrassment. You mm. think that's like a unique cultural trait. They have a name for it. They think about it in different terms. But when you kind of get into how people think about it, it's a pretty basic human, you know, At the same time, if people are not called out for bad work, then they won't oh. necessarily do it. They won't necessarily fix it. Also, as a foreigner in a Chinese company, that losing face is an excuse for people not taking responsibility yeah. for stuff all the time. Right. And we used to get it thrown in some people. I'd just be like, no, you're fucking, you're taking, you're, you're going to fix this. <laughs> I, we can call this out. You, you can take it, care about it. You don't have to like lambast people in front of all their colleagues. Mm-hmm. But, but ownership, it's, it's not an excuse for people not doing things properly. So that, um, and again, going back to not awesome English skills, um, I ha- that's one of the keys to cracking this for us is that we run our own internal social network, essentially, like our own little Facebook using mm. software called Basecamp. Um, so Hong Kongers have really excellent written English, much better than their oral English. And everything we do is through this Facebook-like thing. Mm-hmm. So every single machine we make is photographed there. Every single thing that gets done to the machine, every repair, every customer interaction is there. And it's all CCing the people who, got, who made the machine. So when that machine goes out, if it comes back, and let's just use the wood handle. The wood handle then, let's say, the paint falls off mm. after a week. The tech support person is going to post a photo from the customer, and everyone's going to see the paint fell off. And we do not need to call out the name of the person who worked on that handle. But well, that person's embarrassed. See, I would, I would have guessed that that would be a moment where you might be, there's potential cultural insensitivity mm. in that. I, one of the things I absolutely love about Hong Kongers is they use this phrase really often, I'm sorry, I will try and do better. And I rarely heard that phrase in the West. Mm. I've never heard it in China. <laughs> Never in China. Yeah. I hear it really often. I remember one guy, he screwed up three times in a week, and he wrote me a separate letter saying how mortified he was. He's never made three mistakes in a week. He really needs to self evaluate. It sounds like, to me, that sounds almost Japanese. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, that sense of like really 
deep like shame mm-hmm. when they're doing something wrong, but mm-hmm. also the, the need to rectify it. And it's we never said you, anything. Yeah. Like, and that was the thing is that the bosses never called out. It was just, and there was no arguing with it, right? The customer had the thing. They sent the photo in. The customer was unhappy. Our tech support people had to deal with the unhappiness. No one blamed that person, but everyone knew who was the cause of it. One, one of the things that, uh, that, that I'm learning here is, is the d- deep sense of ownership that you have over Decent when it comes to communicating with the customers. Clearly, this is a very successful company in relative terms, but it's very successful. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you have every opportunity to go much, much, much bigger. And one of the things you always say is that you don't want to do that because you want to keep the direct communication with the customer, which you might lose mm-hmm. if, you, if you go on, 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 on a bigger scale. The, the problem with how most things are made mm-hmm. is that there's very little connection between the people designing it and the eventual use of it. Right. And then actually you know, coming back. Mm. Even like, let's say, an, an iPhone mm. with all the problems the OS might have, I don't really get the feeling that people who work on that thing read the forms, reading about the complaints about how the iPhone how works. How could they? Like, they're, just, you know. they're just not interested. But yeah. ironically, Apple kind of rescued itself by, by actually looking at the user experience mm-hmm. much more carefully than mm. computers were at that point, right? Yes. Um, though I feel like they've gone off the deep end. The, the iPhone's incredibly complicated to use now um but i I just use that as an example because everyone knows it and Mm. and the phones that we have now and that's that's one where the communication cycle is possible there are forums and the people using the 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 phones can feedback but if you take something like a coffee machine how do you even get back to say samsung you're using a samsung coffee machine Mm. how do you feed back to the people that you know when you try and put a thingy in the other thingy it tends not to fit and you get frustrated in the morning yeah, I think my question more is like, why do you care so much about the customer experience if you're doing so well? Ah, so the reason I care about the customer experience is that I, I don't actually, hmm, let me put it in different terms. Um, I, I'm going to sound like an egomaniac, but I'm fairly smart. Mm. And like a lot of fairly smart people, you grow up and you think, God, I'm so much smarter than everybody else. And mm. then you go to college and you're surrounded by a lot of people who are smart. Yeah. And you realize, actually... It was just this rarefied world I was in where I was the smartest guy in the room. And now that I'm in the big city mm. or like the college, and then you leave college and you go work at a company. Mm. And in my case, it was Discovery Channel and there was a bunch of Harvard graduates and they were all way smarter than me. Right. And, and I started to realize that I could be much, much more if I could get these way smarter people to work with me. And so all my projects, from Bookmooch to Magtoon, have all been, uh, and decent, have all been trying to create a system or a culture where way more talented, way smarter people, for some reason, want to work with me. Mm. And I, I, I synergize them um, in order to conquer my own little limits. And despite that, you still hired Muhammad. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So where do you where would you like everything to be five years from now? Uh, okay, so what what is happening right now, which I really want. Let me go back to Buckminster Fuller mm. for a second. You guys never heard from about him. You can go Google him. Mm. But what's interesting is he had a whole series of other inventions. So one of them, for example, was inventing something called the World Game, which was he found that countries made these decisions not knowing what the other country is going to do, and and then if they had known, they would have done a different decision. So if we could get them to play a game where they said, hey, I'm going to do this. What would you do if I did that? And they just play out the game. Hmm. Then the world would have much better decisions. So um, that turns into So it's into like something. United Nations, but 
something that works. Yeah, well, it's and, like game theory. Though, uh, isn't it? It, in game theory, absolutely. And mm. this is essentially what ended apartheid. Is this became a whole wing of consulting in politics, and <laughs> this group went to South Africa and brought the various factions together. Isn't that kind of ridiculous? No, because what happened is every single it's called scenario planning, mm. and all the scenarios ended with mass slaughter of white people. Like all the scenarios, right. twenty years out, white people die in large quantities. Mm. Right. At which point, the extremely racist white government said, We're, "We need to change this." Like mm. this, this is just going to turn out badly for us. And by and, keeping apartheid, yeah, the current right. the current direction was going yeah. to lead to a lot of our people dying, getting slaughtered. Yeah, and okay. there was there was no other outcome. So, so the irony is that they didn't end apartheid because they felt that the black people should have rights. Right. No. The they end ended of apartheid it, yeah. to prevent the yeah. risk to the white people. They, That's the most racist thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this yeah. was a racist government. <laughs> yeah, and they were out for their own skin, and the people. Of the it world, is funny, yeah, that like at the end, like, like what looks so amazing. Amazing on paper it was actually an was act of self-preservation. Even more racist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Um, so, if you look at Buckminster Fuller coming up with this idea, and then the world game, and then the ends apartheid, and there are other cases, other massive things that have changed because of this approach to thinking about diplomacy and, and relationships. Mm. Um, what he did that tipped, that made him really effective, was to start a movement. Mm. Other people took his ideas and ran with it and made it practical. Like he never came up with a consulting agency that did scenario planning to governments. Mm. He, he never did that. Uh, but that was the extension of his idea. That's where his followers, um, yeah. uh, so something called the whole earth catalog, which became the well, which is one of the huge precursors to the internet and forums, mm. is directly out of Buckminster Fuller. Okay. Uh, the well is the whole earth electronic link. Seems like you have no respect for this guy at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so if you say in five years, where do I want to be? I want to be mostly relevant. That's what I want. I mm. want to be the guy who's set up like this scenario planning thing. Mm. In other words, like what, what just happened two weeks ago, which is super scary, is mm. I relinquished the control over the Espresso Machine app, the app on the tablet. Mm. So I'm the one who architected it so you could reskin it, you could do extensions to it. And the community has been growing, but they've been kind of chafing at my control. Yeah. Uh, I was the guy who approved everything. And it's been, and the progress has been slow. And I... Because, someone, because of that. Because of that. Because mm. I got other things to do. And, and finally, someone who was very, very strong-willed mm. and very talented uh, just kept pushing me on it and saying, where do you want to be in five years? And I said, well, I want to be here. And she said, look... I'll just do all that work and you'll be in five years in two weeks. I was like, okay, gulp. Mm. Um, okay. I'm like, I said I want to be there in five years. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to do all that work. All that stuff you said was going to take five years, I'm going to do it all for you for free right now because I'm hot shit, <laughs> which <laughs> she is. Um, and, and that's where we are now. Um, we're releasing this version. It's like every two days, there's 40 new features. It's kind of like I don't do 40 features in a year. Mm. So, um, so that's amazing, but it is out Scary. of control. Yeah. And out of control, I mean like I don't control it. Now, they have their own control mechanisms and I'm simply an advisor now. How do you feel about like, because you have been obviously in charge of these since the beginning mm. and now you're kind of letting go of some things slowly. And, and the app has become your apartheid. So this was really <laughs> funny. So I, I slammed somebody yeah. for doing something and yeah. I was actually the guilty party. So this guy added a feature that I didn't like. So I, I undid it. Mm. And I, I said, hey, dude, you know, don't undo feet. And then he undid my undo. 
right? So he put a feature in, I removed it, he put it back. Right. And so I said, hey, don't... Seems, seems like a good uh, adult approach yeah. to uh, <laughs> right, processes. Right. So, so I said, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's really aggressive if you, if you undo my work without asking me. Mm. At which a third person said, um, dude, that's exactly what you did to him. You raised his feature right. without actually right. talking to yeah. him. But then that's that. Like we didn't. How do you not let your ego get in the way and go? That's my fucking app anyway. Well, that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, but it's my <laughs> app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but I mean, I put myself as obviously an immature idiot in that position. I'm mean, like, hey, fuck off. Just don't, don't touch it. It's I had mine. to, I had to swallow my pride because, right. um, like there's this guy who who was that guy, uh, yeah. a guy named Jeff. And we really graded on each other on the forums. Mm. And and people said, you know, this guy's a is, customer? He's or? a customer, but yeah. he's mm. he's a guy making making my software way better for free. Right. Um and and he's basically call he's basically saying my I'm a shit programmer. That's basically what he's saying. Like that, Yeah, that's mis- that's actually where I'm I'm really interested in. Like when you get called out by someone who's a customer who's really good at something, yeah, and he's calling you out, you're like, shit, he's right. Where does the ego sit? Well, yeah, I, I was yeah. like, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not as good as I was 15 years ago, but I'm not that shit. You, know, <laughs> you could be nicer about it, but, right? But really, we were splitting hairs because the stuff he was pointing out was 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 shit, and I should have like he was pointing out stuff that was first draft that I mm. should have revised, but I, I never got around to. And he's going around and doing a second and a third draft on mm. my stuff, and it's undeniably better. Right? Why are customers redoing your app? So the reason they're doing the app is because it's not my app anymore. As and that's a conscious decision that, of letting go. What is it open source? It is or? open source. So the app mm. is open source. So I wrote the app and I controlled it and I let people make submissions to me and I, in my wisdom, would, would agree or not. <laughs> okay? And, and they basically chafed under that. And, and mm. there was improvement, but very slow. Mm. Uh, and, and people wanted to make big, big changes to, to how things, like huge additions of functionality that, that I thought might be like making it too complicated mm. or ugly looking. Right, uh, too nerdy. They they weren't what I wanted. It weren't, wasn't what I would do. But uh, I created an architecture where all those contributions could happen, and then people could choose it, like browsers and extensions and that sort mm. of thing. So the reason that they're doing this is that once you've bought this machine, the coffee machine, you've got the tablet there, and the founder of the the, the company is saying, "Hey, you can change this. You can make it be different," and they have jobs that don't have that impact. So they're able to literally spend the weekend and change some aspect of how it makes coffee. And right. on Monday, 5,000 people are going to be Seeing using this that, thing yeah. that they did and, and giving them accolades, um, buying them cake as a thank you. And, and it's also, it's like a real thing. Like they're making coffee differently on Monday. I read a thing recently that said that content will kill creators but creating communities is the best thing a creator can do right now. Right. There's way too many C's in that. Alliteration is kind of driving my brain. The idea, but you understand what they're saying, right? It's like if um, you commit, if you want to, let's say you have a podcast, a hypothetical. Yeah. Um, you're you're you are the only source of of progress. You're the only mm. source of mm. moving things forward. And they're saying now the creators that are really killing it are those that are able to create a community where other people can step in. And, and have a platform for their own creation. Uh, I would, I would of, agree. Yeah. So let me put it in a different uh, space, which is, so I, I did this book swapping website because I was afraid that the books books were dying. There was no distribution for books. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I was working on a book at one point about raw seafood recipes, and I realized that 
there was no point in my writing a book as an author and acting like the authority. If I actually cared about recipes, about raw seafood, I should create a website where people who are into this topic could all work together to come up with raw seafood recipes. Mm, sounds like you're a bit ahead of the game. That, that would mm. actually solve the problem. The book would be an ego trip to be the authority on raw seafood recipes. It seems um, to be kind of a common theme in your stories on how you approach things is that the ego, like the battle with your ego, basically. It's like, I can do this my way and still make it be successful or good. Yes. But there is a better way, which is kind of like outsourcing it or having other people work with you. But I won't be the main guy, but that's for the better. I think um, I think I was smart enough to be able to, to talk to really smart people and not totally mm. disrespect me. Um, but I wasn't smart enough to do what they did. Yeah. So if I wanted to accomplish what the really smart people did, right. then I needed a, f a way to get them on my team. Right, yeah. Okay, that Th makes sense. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. Hey, you're welcome. It's been fantastic. Cheers, man. Yeah.